0: It is my singular pleasure to welcome all of you here to the 2008 Boyle Lecture. When I was a chaplain to students, it fell to me to interview all new entrants individually as part of their initiation. I had a carefully crafted and rehearsed conversation which involved explaining the life of the chapel and the role of the chaplain as an independent, non-academic resource. One student replied to this explanation, boldly, I thought. Oh, he said, you're a sort of social worker. (laughs) Although that may well have amply described what the authorities for whom my likely pastoral competence was the touchstone, what they hoped from me, I felt it as a trivialisation and an offence. I wrote at the time that the display of being approachable and unshockable may be read as giving the nod to unbelief, Or the absence of personal moral seriousness. An unmistakable consequence of the rise of psychology has been the pastoral professionalization of the clergy, or at the very least, the pitting of their contribution to individual welfare against that of others who might seem to be in the field. And for some, this has acquired a priority, sometimes with clear theological intent, more often as a retreat for the more difficult business of Christian ministry. More recently, the reform of the liturgy has attempted to emphasise the power of historic worship to shape and recreate human life through the dynamic participation in resurrection and humanisation. The pastoral efficiency of liturgy has thus been reaffirmed. But any Christian minister will know that the experience of vocation, which I take to be a religious experience, could readily and often should be analysed into its component parts of personal background, disposition, history, injury even, and yet would retain an indefinable element for which psychological explanation might perhaps fall short an openness to the complexity of my personality need not cause me to doubt the authenticity of the call, though it might assist me to ensure that the call is efficient and of use to others. But at the same time, psychology might be thought to increase the individualization of religious experience and an unintended emphasis on personal spirituality and salvation, which in turn has ushered in a crude, and I should have thought psychologically damaging, soteriology, suggestive that God is interested in persons rather than communities. That does injury to the tradition and warrants a correction. In welcoming you to this fifth revived Boyle Lecture, I am delighted that once again Gresham College, together with other supporters, have most graciously agreed to record the proceedings and to make them available by webcast. There should before long be a link from St Mary Le Beau's own website. I record a debt of gratitude to the Lecturer's Trustees for their guidance and enthusiasm, as to the Worshipful Company of Mercers, and especially to the Worshipful Company of Grocers, by turn patrons of this parish, whose interest and generosity has once again been imaginative and unstinting. It is my pleasure now to introduce Dr. Michael Byrne, with whom I have lately and happily collaborated on a history of the parish, unsurprisingly available for sale afterwards, and who, with characteristic energy and great good humor, convenes these lectures.
1: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to join with the Rector in welcoming this fifth in the New Lectures. As you know, the original Boyle Lectures ran for 40 years, from 1692 until 1731 or thereabouts, and in a number of other churches in the city and Westminster. So it's heartening to realize that we only have 35 more years of this to go. Our first two lecturers, Jack Haught in 2004 and Simon Conway Morris in 2005, looked at possible connections between Darwinian evolution and Christian theology. In 2006, Philip Clayton asked or theology. And last year, Barrow gave us an overview of contemporary cosmology and asked about the theology of the whole universe. One of our trustees, John Polkinghorne, then suggested that we should extend our reach from the physical and biological sciences to deal with the human sciences as well. And what you will shortly hear from Can you hear me? I have a feeling this is coming and going. Well, I'll plow on. These Boyle lectures in some ways represent an updated version of the natural theology, which was so important in Boyle's own day as an exercise in Christian apologetics. But natural theology, or even a less ambitious theology of nature, is in fact roundly rejected by certain sections of Christian opinion. Many. Conservative Christians do not accept that theology has much, if anything, to learn from the natural or human sciences. For them, God's revelation is complete in the incarnation and in scripture. All else is a distraction, or perhaps even worse. The Catholic tradition has not had such a negative attitude to the possibility of learning from the sciences. And the liberal Christian tradition affirms that while neither discipline should ever seek to dictate terms, an outright refusal of either to learn from the other would be an unwise curtailment of the opportunity for deeper mutual understanding. Saint Mary Le Beau is famous for its tradition of dialogue, which is why it seems appropriate for these lectures to foster an ongoing conversation between theology and the sciences. This would not be possible without distinguished speakers who show great generosity in giving their time to deepen that dialogue. Our lecturer this evening, Professor Malcolm Jeeves, is a renowned psychologist, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the University of St. Andrews, a department which he established, and a former president of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Professor Jeeves was appointed CBE in 1992 for his services to science and psychology in Britain. Responding to the lecture will be Dr. Fraser Watts, Reader in Theology and Science in the University of Cambridge, a priest of the Church of England, and a former president of the British Psychological Society. Dr. Watts became Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and the Natural Sciences at Cambridge in 1994. And we're very pleased to have Susan Howich, who endowed that lectureship, with us as our guest this evening. Uh, In a subtle marketing ploy and with characteristic modesty, George has already mentioned the history of St. Mary Le Beau, which he and I edited last year. It's 380 pages, it's 30 quid, and it's excellent value. <laughs> it's also on sale this evening. One chapter in that history, written by a German scholar, Johannes Wienand, traces the history of these Boyle Lectures from 1692 to the present day. And what emerges from Johannes' chapter there is something that struck me when George and I first talked about reviving these lectures five years ago, the fact that they represent such a remarkable confluence of diverse themes and disciplines, science, philosophy, theology, public dialogue, Christian apologetics, even city history, in this splendid building, Christopher Wren's most ambitious city church. In listening to Malcolm and Fraser this evening, we are rich participants in that tradition, and we continue the history of dialogue in search of understanding for which St. Mary LeBeau is so well known. It's therefore my great pleasure to introduce Professor Malcolm Jeeves and invite him to deliver the 2008 Boyle Lecture.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, it's a tremendous privilege for me to be here this evening and to give this lecture. I have to begin with a disappointment. I have some problems with Qatar, and I always like something to drink. And I was telling the rector that in Scotland, whiskey is much more appropriate than a glass of water. (laughs) But I'm having to make do with a glass of water this evening. Um, I'm delighted to be here this evening. I'm encouraged by a number of friendly faces in the front rows, not least one of my colleagues who is also a president of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, Lord Sutherland, who is here with us. What I intend to do this evening is not to read the lecture. And if any of you have got a copy, you'll be most relieved because when I looked at it, I realized it would take just under two and a half hours to read, (laughs) and I was told that at the most I had 40 minutes. And therefore, what I'm going to do is to try to give you the, the gist of the main points that I want to share with you, and I've documented in detail with well over 100 references in the actual printed lecture. So if you wish to follow up any of the points in detail, then you can do that. For yourself later on. First of all, may I say thank you to the organizers for inviting me to give this lecture. Last year, John Barrow was talking about the stars and cosmic dust. This evening I want us to come quickly to Earth and talk about ourselves from dust to dust. So in one year, we move from cosmic dust to earthly dust. Incidentally, such a move was not uh, something that I was the first one to think about. And uh, those of you who are familiar with uh, Saint Augustine will know that uh, a millennium and a half ago, he said, men go out and gaze in astonishment at the stars in their courses, but they pay no attention to themselves. I'm not now investigating the tracts of the heavens or measuring the distance of the stars. I'm investigating myself, my memory, my mind. And he asked the question, what then am I, my God? What is my nature? Now, I was interested uh, on the last day of last year, listening to today program, to hear one of last year's Nobel laureates take up exactly the same theme. Sir Martin Evans, I'm sorry, we've, we seem to have... Yes, here we are. Sir Martin Evans on BBC Today program said, what we are studying is not the stars in the universe, but the stars within ourselves, our own nature. Now, a very recent paper um, on Robert Boyle reminds us that one of the things that he was interested in was the possibility for mutual enlightenment between theology and natural philosophy. And in uh, one of their articles, McIntosh and Anstey said, Boyle viewed his theological interests and his work in natural philosophy as forming a seamless whole, and constantly use results from the one to enlighten matters in the other. But not everyone agrees that it is mutual enlightening. And if you look back over the last two decades, a series of distinguished scientists have pointed out the possible implications of developments in psychology and neuroscience, in particular, for some traditional views held within the Christian tradition. Let me give you a few examples. David Hubel, who got the Nobel Prize for his work in the 1950s on single cell recordings in cats, way back in 79 said, fundamental changes in our view of the human brain cannot but have profound effects on our view of ourselves and the world. This was picked up in a much more provocative way by Francis Crick, another Nobel laureate, In 94, the idea that man has a disembodied soul is as unnecessary as the old idea that there was a life force. This is in head-on contradiction to the religious beliefs of billions of human beings alive today. And he asked the question, how will such a radical change be received? The high profile uh, science writer, John Horgan, who wrote the book, The End of Science, In 203, he said, what is arguably the major cultural question of our times, can the humanistic and even religious view of human nature be reconciled with science? And shortly before he died, Francis Crick picked up his theme yet again, when he said, in the fullness of time, educated people will believe there is no soul independent of the body and hence no life after death. Well, there are plenty of educated people here this evening, so we'll ask that question in the light of the relevant evidence. Now, in the printed copy of the lecture, there are many, many more examples that I give of a whole variety of issues in that group, but I'm just gonna pick out one or two this evening to illustrate the possibility of this mutual interaction and ask whether, in fact, it is always quite as enlightening as Robert Boyle Uh, believed uh, that it was. A recent article in the journal Nature also picked up this theme. Uh, In June of last year, a lead article said, with deference to the sensibilities of religious people, the idea that man was created in the image of God can surely be put aside. Scientific theories of human nature may be discomforting or unsatisfying, but they're not illegitimate, which is fair enough. Now, my plan is to take a particular issue of the kind that Francis Crick was talking about, which I think does cause tension at the seams that Boyle was talking about. And I want to illustrate what I think is a constructive approach to these sorts of issues. To do this, I shall have to give you briefly the flavor of the scientific evidence that persuaded Crick of his views and uh, that uh, most uh, neuroscientists and psychologists are aware of. So my plan is to do that, and I shall then ask, what does it all mean? What sort of thought models does it lead to? I shall then ask, how have theologians reacted to this? And I shall briefly discuss a topic which by its very name, is at one of the seams that Robert Boyle was talking about. It's neurotheology. Neurotheology, where the two meet at the scene. This gets a lot of publicity. It's going to get a lot more in the future, and I just want to uh, talk briefly about that. And all of this in 40 minutes. <laughs> right, I hope. First then, um, let's have a look at the way in which developed things developed in science to produce the present situation. Now I can move along a bit. What are the contours of the main, of the scientific landscape? Well, there were three converging streams. The first one was, oh dear, you mustn't see those yet. We're going too fast. The first of these was the so-called cognitive revolution. Um, Some of you will know that around the middle of the last century uh, behaviorism dominated psychology. And then people said, but surely psychologists should be allowed to talk about the mind. And uh, the revolution took place. And once again, we were allowed to talk about the mind. Once you could talk about the mind, experimental psychologists began to develop sophisticated techniques to actually study aspects of mental behavior. We didn't just talk about memory but short-term memory, long-term memory, working memory, we could fractionate memory. Once you can do this, then you can ask, do particular kinds of damage to particular parts of the brain shed light on how the memory is organized? And so with the development of more and more sophisticated brain imaging techniques, you could bring together these three streams, the cognitive revolution, experimental psychology, and the brain imaging techniques. Um, For a long time, 50 years ago, one had to depend, if you're researching in this area, on people who had accidental damage to their brains. For more than 30 years, I studied a very small group of people who had the misfortune to be born without the pathways that normally connect the two hemispheres of our brains. And by studying these people over three decades, seeing how they developed from small children into adults, you could begin to understand what these millions of fibers connecting the two sides might be contributing to the overall way the brain worked. So specific case studies were one way of doing it. You could also make animal models so that you could actually uh, take an animal and, under proper surgery, you could make an animal model of it. In this particular case, you know, what I did was to take extremely young kittens before their eyes open, section under anesthesia, this part of the brain, and let them grow up. And so then you could test very carefully how the this uh, part of the brain worked. Um, some of these studies on patients uh, became quite classical. And uh, in, the, in this clinical domain, some of them raised all sorts of difficult questions of a moral nature. Let me just illustrate this with one particular case which received uh, wide publicity. It, it was published in the Archives of Neurology in, in 2003. Uh, what happened was um, a schoolmaster had been collecting uh, sex magazines and visiting pornographic sites. With, and uh, he claimed that he was unable to stop himself doing this. He went through a course of uh, rehabilitation, a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's designed to help people with these problems. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it didn't work. and. Uh, Shortly before he was to be uh, uh, sentenced, he was quite distraught because he had the most terrible headache. And he admitted himself to the um, emergency department of the local hospital. They took an MRI and lo and behold, there was a, uh, a tumor about the size of a small egg in his right frontal lobes. Uh, they operated on him. And when he recovered, it was discovered that his paedophilia tendencies had totally disappeared. And he was allowed to return to normal life. Uh, Towards the end of that first year, he began to feel the desire to go onto the web and to get involved in paedophilia again. And he again admitted himself to the local hospital. They took a brain scan, and lo and behold, the tumor was regrowing at exactly the same spot that it had been removed before. The surgeons removed it, and once again, his tendencies totally disappeared. So, the link between, if you like, mind, brain, and behavior, is not just in the domain of things like perception and thinking and memory, but it also is in the domain of things like moral choices and moral behavior. And when you get to this, it seems to me this does raise questions uh, which uh, are quite profound questions to which there are no obvious answers. Now you will notice that up to now all the examples I've given are what we call the bottom-up approach. By that we mean but if you modify the neural substrates of your brain, you can then have a look and see how does this affect the way that I think or behave. But with the brain imaging techniques now available, a new approach has become possible. And this is to ask the question, is it possible that the ways in which we habitually think and behave in a top-down way, modify our brains in a systematic way. Now, you probably all know about the well-advertised results of the marvelous study they did here in London. If you came here in a London taxi this evening, uh, you may or may not know that uh, if you have to undergo the two-year training to be a taxi driver, this actually modifies both the size and the shape of a part of your brain called the hippocampus. And you can actually monitor this changing over the period, so the behavior in which you habitually engage modifies your behavior. This is a remarkably intimate link between cognitive activity and what is happening in your brain. And I just want to give you one example because of another study that came that was published not long ago because the actual title of this paper has within it uh, the phrase change the mind and you change the brain. This was uh, um, effects of cognitive behavior therapy on the neural correlates of spider phobia. Now you may think why take a funny thing like spider phobia? But in fact, it's a condition which is the most common of all psychiatric disorders in the USA. Phobias of one sort or another are the most common. And in recent years, it's been possible with a variety of forms of psychotherapy to actually give help to people who have these phobias. But the question is, do these various forms of psychotherapy then have neurobiological effects to the brains of the people undergoing them. And so with the modern brain imaging techniques, the authors of this paper decided to carry out this study. Not only did it have the title Change the Mind and Change the Brain, which was a good reason for choosing it, but also amongst the many references at the end, there was a paper by F. N. Watts, Fraser Watts, that he published in 1984 on spider phobia. He didn't know that uh, I was going to choose this paper. So there's a nice link there. Now, what happened was this. Um, They took a picture of the brains of these patients before they underwent a course of what is called cognitive behavior therapy. And then they took pictures after the course of the cognitive behavior therapy had been carried out. In cognitive behavior therapy, what you do is You have stimuli like pictures of spiders and also pictures of non-threatening stimuli like butterfly. And you gradually over a period of time get the patients able to be in the presence, first of all, of the pictures of the spiders and then with appropriate therapy, uh, moving pictures. And finally, they're able to be able to handle spiders. But the question is, as they undergo this cognitive behavior therapy, does this changing their mind, involving the change of their attitudes towards these, modify their brains? And I took a couple of slides out of the paper uh, to, uh, to illustrate this. Um, this, um, let's, if I can make this work. Ah, there should be a pointer. Well, you can see they used the uh, pictures of the spiders you see on the left and the um, uh, butterflies on the right. And uh, by looking at the differential response to these, they had a look at the response of the brains of these people before the treatment took place. And what they found was, if you look at the left side of the picture, the area of the brain in the prefrontal area there, which was widely known from other studies to be involved in the control of of, of emotional responses. Uh, this in in the um, in these patients was extremely active in the top right side there. After the cognitive behaviour therapy, this activation in the top right hand corner there had totally disappeared. And if you look at another, all uh, right another view of the brain. Once again, you can see at the top here, pre-treatment, you have the high activation here, and also down here, post-treatment is completely gone. The point's a simple one, change the mind, and you change the brain. So, the take-home message is that this further underlines what I would describe as the intimate interdependence between mind and brain. Now. We simply don't understand how to explain this. But it is clear that there is this intimate interdependence. It is a unity, and uh, various people have commented on this. Um, Neurologists and psychiatrists are pretty agreed about it. This is, oh sorry, these things. The upper quote is from uh, Tony Damasio, who is a, an eminent neurologist in America. Summing up this, he said The distinction between diseases of brain and mind, between neurological problems and psychological or psychiatric ones, is an unfortunate cultural inheritance that permeates society and medicine. It reflects a basic ignorance of the relation between brain and mind. Uh, Robert Kendall, who was professor of psychiatry at Edinburgh, sadly now dead, wrote, we should talk of psychiatric illness or disorders rather than of mental illnesses. And if we do continue to refer to mental and physical illnesses, we should preface both with so-called to remind ourselves and our audience that these are archaic and deeply misleading terms. Now, how do we best think about this? Well, I want to suggest, and I've gone into it in some detail in the printed paper, that we should regard mental activity and correlated brain activity as what I would call inner and outer aspects of one complex set of events that together constitute conscious human agency. And this means that I think that the relationship is of interdependence characterized by an irreducible I say irreducible because you cannot get away with reductionism here. You can't say, let's let's disregard the physical or let's disregard the mental. That is disregarding one aspect of reality. I say intrinsic because in every study that's been done, it seems to be part of the way we are. Duality because you can't ignore one or the other. You've got to pay attention to both. But you don't have dualism of substance in order to accept this. And that was one of the things that Francis Crick thought you had to have, dualism of substance, a separate immaterial soul tucked away somewhere between years. Let's go back to Robert Boyle. He viewed his theological interests and his work in natural philosophy as forming a seamless whole and constantly use results from the one to enlighten matters in the other. The question is, are things coming apart at the seams? Because it seems to me, that's not supposed to be a pun, it seems to me that uh, to some extent, things are coming apart at the seams. Why is this? I think it is because, because—and this is just one quote from uh, Leslie Stevenson, right from the early days, ideas from Greek philosophy And the idea of an immaterially mortal soul found its way into christian thinking and it's tended to stay there ever since and it is still there in some quarters Um, but when soul became mind and this is a quote from malik the question of how the transcendental soul acted on the physical body became replaced for the question of how the immaterial mind could arise out of fleshly matter it, seemed, it still remains a central question for the science of mind. The point is, what used to be a theological question is now a question that can be investigated within the scientific domain, the relation between mind and brain. And it is because of what Crick saw as the necessity to believe that we have a little immaterial, immortal soul tucked away somewhere, linked somewhere in the brain, that he believed, as he said in this quote, that uh, Christian views could no longer be held. I want to suggest that this is, if I understand the theologians properly, not a view that most of them would wish to defend these days. And if I might give you a quote to substantiate my view, this is from from Bishop Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham. uh, And he said, should we continue then to speak of souls at all? I see no problem with the word in principle. As Lewis Carroll suggested, you can use words however you like as long as you pay them extra on Thursdays. Well, today's Wednesday, so we don't have to pay extra. You can say soul as long as you're committed to meaning by that, a whole human being living in the presence of God. Soul language within a Christian context is a shorthand for telling a story of that sort, a story about the way in which human beings as wholes are irreducibly open to God. It is not, within Christian theology, a shorthand for a story in which a partitioned human being has a soul in one compartment, a body in another, and quite possibly all sorts of other bits and pieces equally divided up. We can then continue, can continue to use the word soul with fully Christian meaning, but we should be careful because the language has a checkered history and may betray us. That, it seems to me, enables us to see um, how the, conver- the, the emerging picture from within cognitive neuroscience uh, resonates with a theological picture if we follow the view that uh, Bishop Tom Wright has uh, uh, put forward here. But it has other ramifications. The other ramifications are this. If the idea of the soul as a separate immaterial thing has to be, if you like, done away with, it raises other problems because for long periods within Christian theology, belief that we are made in the image of God was linked to the fact that we were supposed to possess an immaterial, immortal soul. So it raises further questions of what is meant by saying we're made in the image of God if we no longer have a separate immortal soul. Uh, This is a biblical scholar, Joel Green, to speak in more traditional terms, what does it mean any longer to affirm that we are bearers of the divine image? Well, now, I have dealt with this in detail in the written lecture, I won't have time to deal with it here, but I do think that there are certain quotes we I can give you quickly, Colin Gunton, who was Professor here at King's until his early death made the point to be made in the image of God is at once to be created as a particular kind of being, a person, and to be called to realize a certain destiny, not to do with little bits and pieces we possess here or there. I rather like this quote from Professor Patrick Miller, Old Testament professor at Princeton, because it seems to me that it fo- refocuses on what are the essential things from a theological point of view in trying to understand what is essential about us as human beings. And he says, whatever therefore is to be said about the human cannot be confined to general statements about humanity apart from God. It cannot be said apart from the discovery that in Jesus Christ we see who we are and we also see God for us. And he went on, the answer to the question about who we are is finally eschatological, when tears are no longer part of the human reality, where joy is the order of eternity, and where our transience disappears in the disappearance of death. But, for the moment, we cannot say, see that yet, but we do see Jesus. That will have to do, he said, and he said, I think it is enough. And if I may say so, for me, it is enough. Now then, I want briefly now to say a little bit about a topic that is becoming more and more in the public domain. Spirituality has become a buzzword, rather like a hand-waving word. And a lot is talked about the spiritual dimension of humankind. And it's in this domain that um, we get to discussions of this New area of research known as neurotheology. And in introducing you to this, um, I want to. No, I'm going to miss that bit out. <laughs> Let me just say very quickly one thing and then go on to the next. Uh, there's a lot of research been done over the years to show that. If you use particular kinds of hallucinogenic drugs, you induce experiences which are frequently described in religious terms. There's a clear link between the ingestion of certain drugs and these religious experiences. There's also a long neurological literature going many, many years back that shows that certain forms of temporal lobe epilepsy are associated in an above normal way with excessive religiosity and in particular if it's in the right temporal lobe. And now there are researchers actually using a form of stimulation of the temporal lobe transcranial magnetic stimulation and they can show that if you stimulate that part of the brain people frequently will report that they have an amazing sensation of the presence of another person and if they are religious they will describe that person as God or an angel. And so activity in particular parts of the brain is well documented as being associated with particular kinds of religious experience. Um, You also, I'm sure, are aware that if you look at the history of some of the great men and women of God from the past, it's remarkable how many of them have had forms of psychiatric disorder, which we would now diagnose quite specifically and be able to treat with appropriate drugs. And uh, there's a good deal written about them. Uh, People like John Bunyan, William Cowper, Martin Luther, J.B. Phillips and others who had quite specific problems. One thing is clear that our spirituality is firmly embedded within us and embodied. It's not something free floating above our heads, it's part of our very makeup. But what I want to do now is to get you to take part with me in a a little experiment. Um, Nothing too threatening, Uh, sorry. (coughs) To introduce it, I want to say that the kind of, some of the research I've been talking about has been so used in the media that I think the general public have almost got a view of the relation between the mind and the brain that goes back to the so-called phrenology, where you feel your bumps. And a particular bump on a particular part of the head means you have a particular ability. And when this gets widely publicized, you get a picture like this one, which I pulled out of The Times a couple of years ago, uh, 2nd of April, uh, 2006. This is uh, to do with maternal intelligence, and it tells you why having children makes women smarter. And you'll see here that uh, these middle aged women now have a part of the brain for renegotiating the mortgage, part for visiting the museum, part for embroidering a name on Molly's uh, PE bag, part for wash and iron the children's game kit, and so on. But this is a. This, this, I think, does reveal a, a sort of a popular reading of some of this data. But this is the experiment I want you to take part with me in. Um, an Anglican who was living at the same time as Robert Boyle wrote a book, and in it he had a lovely quote from the then Provost of Eton about a particular form of religious experience and meditation of which he personally was aware. And I want you, if this works correctly and doesn't give it away straight away, to see if you can think of what particular kind of religious activity, what form of meditation he was referring to. or oh, before that, this is, a, this is an up-to-date, uh, way in which the the media reinforce this uh, phonology idea. Now, this neurotheology, uh, I'm sorry, this this is just to show you the way in which it is being misused, where God lives in the human brain. This is suggesting that there's a particular part of the brain where God lives, and this proves the existence of God or if you go to Newsweek, how we're wired for spirituality. But let us have a look and see if we can get, this is the meditation. I want you to tell me what form of meditation this was. It was a rest to his mind, a cheer of his spirits, a diverter of sadness, a calmer of unquiet thoughts, a moderator of passions, a procurer of contentedness. What sort of activity do you think was being engaged in to produce these effects? Yes? Drinking whiskey. whiskey. Drinking whiskey. Well, not actually, no. (laughs) Just at this moment, I think I would agree with you, (laughs) yeah. But in fact, this is a quote from a book which has been reprinted more often than any other book in English, except the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. (laughs) This is how Sir Henry Cotton described the effect Of fishing. Now, my addiction is fly fishing. (laughs) This is where we do the experiment. This is not actually a picture of me, but it could be, and I know that there are others here this evening who share this addiction with me because we do it together sometimes. Now, I want to do this little experiment because I'm concerned that we try and tease out the logic of this neurotheology. Now, in this experiment, what we do is we have a look at the brain of this fly fisherman. We know that he's convinced that there are fish. He can't see them, but he's convinced they're there below the surface. He firmly believes it. (laughs) We then get um, half a dozen other friends who all have brain scans done while they're fishing. And we discover that exactly the same part of the brain lights up when they're fly fishing. So what does that demonstrate? That we are made with a fishing spot in the brain, and that it proves that fish exist Because we, that part of the brain, we firmly believe that fish exists. Well, I don't think it does but we should perhaps perhaps extend the experiment slightly. Uh, <laughs> it's possible that the fishing spot might overlap with the uh, god spot in the brain. And therefore, we get the cooperation of these monks, and we see whether, when they're fishing, we get two different bots lighting up, or the same part lighting up. And if we're being really systematic, it is possible there may be gender differences. And we therefore get a couple of nuns, and uh, if you can't read it, have pity on these holy maidens fair, resigned unto the Lord, they bear their cross, forbidden when they lose a fish to swear, I know the temptation, or by a hair's breadth to exaggerate their loss. (laughs) Whenever we lose a fish, It's that bit, and then it gets bigger and bigger as we get nearer to home. Now the point is, I think we could do a little experiment which would demonstrate that we have a fishing spot in the back. But the problem with the way that some neurotheology is being used is to try to demonstrate that this proves that because there's a God spot, therefore God has made us, and so on and so forth. Well, I must conclude... I think the, the illustration I'm trying to make here is that we need to watch out very closely of the logic of any arguments that we meet from the neurotheology of spirituality because I think the logic is quite suspect. I must close. I've suggested, I've called my talk facts, fallacies in the future I suggest, as far as the facts are concerned, that developments in science are going to go on producing tensions uh, at... Oh, I'm sorry, I'll go through, I'll, I'll get rid of those. At the seams that Robert Boyer was talking about. And we've got to be prepared for that and ready for hard work. But I do believe that the combined efforts of scientists and theologians could not only resolve some of these tensions, but in the process can produce fresh insights into our own mysterious nature. Of the fallacies, I think that however successful we are in identifying the psychological and neurological roots of different aspects of religion, we must resist the temptation, thereby to claim that we have now shown that religion is therefore nothing but this or that facet of our neuropsychological makeup. Equally, when we get a deeper understanding of what's happening in the brain when we're behaving religiously or pondering deep religious truths, we must resist the temptation to claim that therefore, the truths being pondered are nothing but the eruptions of our brains. Perhaps the message would come home most clearly some years in the future with the development of brain imaging techniques, which are so small and so mobile, that in a lecture like this, all of you, when you came in, would have one just popped on the top of your head. And at the end of the lecture, we should be able to tell you which parts of your brain had been most active at which part of the lecture, when during the lecture you went to sleep, and so on but I don't think anyone would believe that their judgment of the truth or falsehood of what the lecturer has been saying would be established either by the state of your brain or by the state of his brain. That must be judged against the relevant evidence. And as regards the relevant evidence, according to Robert Boyle, much more is revealed to us about God by the book of scripture than by the book of nature. I don't think there's anything remotely scientific about giving greater weight to what God teaches us through studying the book of nature, in this case, ourselves. For as we've reminded ourselves at the beginning, part of, we are part of nature from dust to dust, than by paying careful attention to the deep insights about humanity from that other book, the book of God's word. As regards the future, let's be clear we're only at the beginning. Presently, undreamed of discoveries in psychology and neuroscience, especially with respect to mind and brain, will continue to astonish us. I think they hold out potential to bring relief to human suffering. And despite what I've said, I believe neurotheology, rightly used and properly interpreted, has potential benefits. For example, there are some psychiatric conditions which present with bizarre religious behaviors and beliefs. If we can better understand their neural substrates, we may find better ways to help and alleviate them. But I think as Christians, we can go forward optimistically and enthusiastically in the scientific enterprise as Boyle himself would have us do, and with him and with our shared faith in Jesus Christ, in whom he firmly believed, knowing that he is the same yesterday today, and forever. Thank you.
3: It's a great pleasure to be giving a response to this Boyle lecture. I'm very grateful to the organisers for the invitation and honoured to be following after Malcolm Jeeves, for whose work I have a great respect. I have no points of disagreement with Malcolm, and I'm sorry if that's a disappointment to some of you, but I think the best way I can compliment what Malcolm has done is is to develop a conceptual framework in which we can can place some of the very interesting scientific findings that he's put before us. And first, let me emphasize the familiar distinction between theology and the study of religion. Theology is the rational reflection of religious traditions such as Christianity. And it's a core task of theology to reflect on Christian doctrine in relation to contemporary culture including scientific culture. The study of religion, in contrast, was developed in the latter part of the 19th century and saw religion as a phenomenon to be studied in as detached, neutral, and scientific a way as possible. Not everyone in the theological camp is very happy about the study of religion. And John Milbank, in his powerful book on theology and social theory, argued that that kind of detached approach of, to religion of the social sciences is anti-theological. I don't accept that claim. It seems to me that the human sciences, such as psychology, are predominantly atheological rather than anti theological anti-theological. They simply bracket out the perspective of theology as they go about their daily business. But I see no difficulty in bringing that detached approach to religion of the human sciences into dialogue with theology. Now, this distinction between theology and religious studies enables us to distinguish the dialogue between theology and psychology on the one hand, from the psychological study of religion on the other. The dialogue between theology and psychology has a place within the broader dialogue of theology with the sciences. Different sciences have different interfaces with theology, And I feel increasingly strongly that we should call this field theology and the sciences, rather than just theology and science, because each science has such a different dialogue with theology. And within the spectrum, I think the dialogue between theology and the human sciences, such as psychology, has a particularly important place for several reasons. Firstly, The methodology of the human sciences is closer to that of theology, and that leads to a more fruitful interface. Psychology is a methodological hybrid, partly a natural science, partly an interpretive or humanistic, hermeneutic discipline. And it can therefore provide a methodological bridge between the detached methodology of the natural sciences on the one hand and the interpretive approach of theology on the other. And the second reason why the dialogue between theology and the human sciences is particularly important is that the human sciences connect with a broad range of topics in Christian doctrine, salvation, the church, for example, whereas the dialogue between theology and the natural sciences doesn't often stray out of the core areas of creation and providence. And thirdly, psychology includes the psychological study of religion, and that leads to a particularly interesting dialogue between psychology and theology about religion itself. So in terms of these distinctions, Malcolm Jeeves' lecture has been mainly concerned with the dialogue between theology and psychology, partly in the first part about their different views about human nature, partly later on with their different perspectives on religion itself. And I want to comment separately on these two parts of the lecture, and firstly about human nature. Each science seems to interface with Christian doctrine rather selectively. And even though I've said that psychology has a broad interface, it interfaces with theology um, most keenly um, on issues of the theology of, of human nature, theological anthropology, as it's called. One important issue about human nature concerns the human constitution. The relationship between body and soul. And there are important antecedents in the Hebraic thought of the Old Testament for seeing the human being as an ensouled body. Many later Christians have taken a more dualistic view of human nature, but that's clearly not the view of the Old Testament. The New Testament view is more debatable though Joel Green, to whom Malcolm referred, has put forward a convincing argument that the New Testament is not dualistic in its thinking about human nature either. One important question for those concerned with the dialogue between neuroscience and theology is how far this biblical view can be reconciled with that of contemporary neuroscience. And here I think it's important to make a distinction between the scientific data itself and the prevailing assumptions about how that data should be interpreted. It seems to me hard to doubt that the prevailing assumption of neuroscience is rather reductionist. It assumes that the higher aspects of human nature, whether soul, mind, or spirit, can be explained in terms of the physical. But it's much less clear that the data necessitates that kind of conclusion. It's worth noting here that the assumption of neuroscience about the primacy of the physical is not universally shared in our society. Social constructionism, in its own way, can be as reductionist as contemporary neuroscience though reducing everything to the social cultural and linguistic rather than reducing them to the physical and i suggest it's wise for for us to eschew extreme forms of both physical reductionism and social constructionism and to seek a balanced and integrative view of the physical personal, and social aspects of human nature. And because psychology is both a biological and a social science, it's uniquely well-placed to grapple with the task of integrating these different perspectives. As Malcolm Jeeves points out in the printed version of his lecture, various non-reductionist solutions to the mind-body problem are being touted and the most prominent in the theology and science world at the moment are the non-reductive physicalism of Nancy Murphy and the emergentism of Philip Clayton. I have much sympathy with an alternative approach that Malcolm Jeeves briefly refers to um, in terms of dual aspect monism, an approach in which he was influenced by the late Donald Mackay Malcolm Jeeves proposes that there's an important duality between the mental and physical, but not that there are two substances. And it's interesting that as distinguished a neuroscientist as Malcolm Jeeves sees nothing in the neuroscientific data that's incompatible with that dual aspect monism. And one conclusion I draw from that is that the neuroscientific data are compatible with a variety of metaphysical assumptions about human nature, and they don't necessitate the physical reductionism that prevails among neuroscientists. The trouble with emergentism from a theological point of view, as Philip Clayton points out with admirable honesty in his book on mind and emergence, is that while well, you can harmonise an emergentist view of the human mind with theological anthropology, you can't take an emergentist, you can't integrate an emergentist view of the mind of God with any remotely orthodox Christian theology. <clears throat> and it seems to me a limited gain to find an approach to mind-body questions that can be reconciled with theological anthropology if it has to be abandoned as soon as we come to the doctrine of God. And I have a growing suspicion that the dual aspect monism that Malcolm Jeeves advocates in the printed version of his lecture can be reconciled with systematic theology in a more satisfactory and comprehensive way than emergentism. Though I have to admit that I haven't yet done the careful work to argue for that in detail, and so for the time being, it remains just a gleam in the eye and a promissory note for the future. Let me now turn and say something about religion. Religion's a term that's gone through huge shifts of meaning, particularly with the advent of secularism. Religion's now taken on a new meaning How it's been used. And as Western culture has become more secular, Christianity has been individualized and privatized in a way that's distorted how people have traditionally thought about religion. Many of the key figures in the psychology of religion, such as William James, um, have, have seen religion in a very individualistic way. James begins his definition of religious experience by talking about it as the experience of individual men in their solitude. But there's no reason, I think, why the psychology of religion should adopt that individualizing perspective. Psychology is a social science, and a psychological approach to religion can include the social perfectly well. But let me turn to to neuropsychology, which is the particular interest of Malcolm Jeeves, and about which he's particularly spoken this evening. The recent wave of research on the brain and religion is one that I welcome and support, and I believe it will ultimately produce interesting and important findings. However, like Malcolm, I'm skeptical perhaps even more sceptical than he is about what has been achieved so far. Brain scanning technology has been crucial to recent advances in the neuroscience. And we saw some scanning pictures this evening. But it has severe limitations. It's usually restricted to very small sample sizes. There are often massive differences between people that make generalization from one person to another very different, difficult. The methodological problems are huge and we'll probably eventually make headway with them, but it will be a slow and difficult business and I don't think we should be too excited about the early findings. My own scientific instinct would be to concentrate first on the cognitive systems involved in religion, and then when we've got that a bit clearer, to go on and look for their neural basis. I think to try to go straight from religion to the brain without mediation through cognitive psychology has only a very slim chance of paying off scientifically. Very different conclusions have been drawn from the growing evidence linking particular parts of the brain and forms of religious activity. For some, knowing the role of the brain in religion permits reductionist conclusions. The assumption is that if religion can be explained in terms of neural activity, no other explanation is necessary. But that can only be justified, that conclusion can only be justified if Occam's razor is applied in a simplistic way. And the search for simple, elegant explanations seems to me to work in the physical sciences, but not in the human sciences. And the fact that we know what the brain is doing in religious activity really has no implications whatsoever for the question of whether or not God might be involved as well. There are others who've used research findings on the brain and religion to establish a new kind of religionism. And Andrew Newberg, one of the key figures in the investigation of the role of the brain in religion, provides an example of this. He remarks in the introduction to one of his books that his subject's mystical experiences were, to quote, not the result of emotional mistakes or wishful thinking, but were associated with a series of observable neurological events, which, while unusual, are not outside the range of normal brain function. In other words, mystical experience is biologically, observably, and scientifically real." I think he's getting rather carried away there. And it's not clear to me how neurological data shows that mystical experience is not a matter of emotional mistakes or wish fulfillment. It could perfectly well be. Knowing the role of the brain in religion no more establishes the reality of religious experience than it proves the reductionist claim that religious experience is nothing more than an epiphenomenon of neural activity. And the fact that people are drawing such contrary philosophical conclusions from the neurological data is one reason why we should be very cautious about such conclusions. But let me end on a positive note about the contribution of psychology to the understanding of religion. I believe the psychology of religion gives us a critical perspective on religion. And that's something that religious people should welcome. Religious experience and activity is very mixed. Some healthy, some unhealthy. Some authentic, some inauthentic. And theology is far from having an uncritical enthusiasm for religion. Jesus is hardly completely enthusiastic about religion. And 20th century theologians such as Bonhoeffer have been cautious about it as well. A discriminating approach to religions is called for, and I believe the critical perspective of psychology can help with that. For example, Freud suggested that people's concepts of God can be a human projection, and there's research to support that view. I don't draw from that the reductionist conclusion that God is nothing more than a projection of the human mind. But I'm pleased to have my attention drawn to how concepts of God can be constrained, constrained, and distorted by psychological processes. And if psychology can help us to be more properly discriminating about religion, as I believe it can, then it makes a very important contribution in the contemporary world. Thank you.
0: As has already been mentioned, copies of tonight's proceedings are available as you leave by either door. Uh, Because of the numbers here this evening, I hope people will only take one copy per person and not for your aunt as well. It remains for me on behalf of you all to thank this evening's speakers for sharing their wisdom and scholarship with um, such flair and fluency and so generously. Our thanks are also due to all of you who have come this evening and for your interest and attention. I'm very delighted to be able to announce that next year's Boyle Lecture will be on Wednesday, the 4th of February, and will be given by the Reverend Professor Keith Ward, currently of Gresham College, to which a response will be made by the Reverend Dr John Polkinghorne, both of them happily with us this evening. We look forward to seeing many of you then.